What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the crackdown on Airbnb and short-term rentals in British Columbia. Okay, this is interesting now because I've heard from many Airbnb operators now who say, wait a second here now, I'm worried about this now. I had set up an Airbnb as a, to generate some retirement income, and along comes the government to put me out of my small business. Why is the government doing it? They want to free up these Airbnb rentals for actual permanent residents of the province, for people to live in long term. Have a listen to David Eby on it here. Without question, uh, in British Columbia, short-term rentals have gotten out of control. Uh, we have a situation uh, in our province where uh, the top 10% of hosts account for 50% of the income for short-term rental operators. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Julius Bloomfield, the mayor of Penticton, one of the cities in British Columbia where this crackdown is going to take effect. Mayor Bloomfield, thank you for coming on today. Morning, Mike, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. So let's talk about this now. So Penticton, of course, super popular with tourists. And I know a lot of people, when they go to Penticton, I know you have some hotel, nice hotels there, but people love the Airbnb as, as well, right? Uh, that's correct. And, uh, you know, Penticton's in a in a bit of a tough position uh, with this proposed legislation. Um, we are a you know very diverse community. We've got a strong tourist uh, industry here. Uh, we're not a resort community, but we do have a very, very strong tourist industry, as most people know. Uh, but we also have a very strong residential sector as well. And uh, so, you know, we have to be aware of the different needs of those two parts of, uh, of the city. Okay, let's have a listen to the, uh, the executive director of your Chamber of Commerce here, Michael Magnuson, talking to Global News here, also expressing some concern about this uh, crackdown. Michael Magnuson here, let's listen. People that are staying in short-term rental facilities don't necessarily want to stay in a hotel. And while we do have beautiful hotels in and throughout the South Okanagan, uh, families or large groups often prefer to rent a house. Mayor Bloomfield, what are you hearing from people who are in small business in Penticton, especially in the tourism sector? Are they worried about this? Uh, yeah, I think Michael is, uh, you know, bang on with his uh, assessment of the situation there. And, you know, we do have... You know, we do have a great tourism sector here, like I say, and, you know, you have some great hotels, but uh, but some people that come here, they want something a little different from a hotel. If they've got a large family, if it's a family getting together, they want some space to get together, you know, so a, a, a vacation rental is, you know, an answer that uh, often comes up and we see that quite a bit, especially with people with extended stays, if they have children in the hockey school here, then mm. they're looking for something with a little more flexibility. Yeah. Now, okay, the government says they're doing this because we're in a housing crisis and people are having difficulty finding a decent, affordable places to rent long term for people who actually live here. I'm sure you, you've got housing pressures in Penticton, right? So oh, what, what yeah. about that? Go ahead. Yeah. 
we have we have immense uh, housing pressures in Penticton, and and with legislation like this, we look at the intended consequences and the unintended consequences. And the intended consequences are to free up some of those uh, properties that are being used for vacation rentals uh, to get them back into the housing market. Great action, you know, great idea, you know, and as, as part of our as part of the provincial government's uh, Homes for People plan. And, and, you know, we welcome anything that is innovative that brings uh, housing back into the market or, uh, or creates housing for the market. Um, but the, what we have to look at are the unintended consequences as well. And the unintended consequences for a place like Penticton um, is that you know we how does it affect proposed developments that are going to happen within the city? We have uh, a target. We've set ourselves a target. We're not one of the targeted communities for new construction, but we have set ourselves targets for uh, what we need as far as housing over the next five years. And we are on line with that target. We have developers looking to build a lot of units in in the city and you know in, in multi multi-family developments and they would bring in you know right now we've probably got 2000 units on the books as to what's being planned and in the final stages of planning and, and getting started with development right now if they are not allowed to sell to short-term rental investors that would affect a percentage of their buyers now depends on the development, where it is, and what it is as to what dis what percentage that is. But it could be anything from ten to fifty percent of their development. That, on the face of it, you'd say, okay, that's great. Then it's going to force people to, you know, it's going to force those developers to sell to people who are going to buy as owner occupiers. But right. what will happen is that those developers are going. Wait a minute, we're reassessing. Mm. And they are reassessing as to whether to even start, because if you take away 20 to 30 percent of the buyers of a development, then you are basically taking away the potential profit of that development. You know, the developers, mm. you know, they, they have a they have a development line and, and uh, you know, and, and they don't get their they don't get their profit until the last units sell. So they have to be confident that their units are going to sell. And if they're not confident, then they put a hold on the development. So we may see an action where we'll, you know, from this from this legislation that's coming in on the face of it, it may bring 100 or 200 homes back into the market that wouldn't normally have been in the market uh, if they stopped being used as short-term rentals. But it may halt the construction of several hundred or even thousands of units that large portion of those would be coming into the housing market wow. as well so that's an unintended consequence and that's something that we need to explore and, and there needs yeah. to be a discussion about that okay that is a really interesting uh angle on this speaking to julius bloomfield the mayor of penticton we're talking about the province's crackdown on airbnb and other short-term rentals you know you, you heard in that clip from the premier that we played there that he said uh, the the large majority of the revenue generated on Airbnb goes to just ten percent of the operators. So these are people who are big time real estate investors. They might be operating who knows dozens of these units and running them like hotel rooms. But then on the other side, you have people who are just running 
one one Airbnb on the side as to generate some retirement income. And I know there are people like that in Penticton. Let me play a clip here for you, Mayor, from this is Global News reporter Taya Fast and also a Penticton Airbnb operator, Debbie Wielden. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. We bought it for the basically for the purpose to retire. However, the new short-term rental regulations could force Grandma's Elephant Hideaway to shut down. It's hard. <laughs> like, it's haven't even really totally processed the feeling of how it, how it is going to affect us. Mayor Bloomfield, have you heard from people who've invested or were planning on retirement income running an Airbnb and now they're worried? Oh, I've heard from many of them. And, uh, yeah, we, I know, you know, Penticton is a is a diverse community, as I've said before, and and so I've heard from both sides of the argument, uh, and I've heard from people who are concerned about short term rentals and their and their effect on the housing market. But I've also uh, just recently heard from a, a large number of independent operators that uh, yeah, just just like your your clip there, um, they have one and uh, well maybe two. Uh, short-term rental properties that they're operating just to create some income and uh, and and build some equity for retirement. Uh, I don't know as there's any large operators in Penticton. I don't know of any. There may be, but I don't. I haven't. You know, I, I haven't found uh, found any large operators in Penticton. Okay. I'm sure there are in centers. Yeah, I'm sure there are in Vancouver. Um, and you know that leads me to another point: is that you know this is. You know, this is a large province. We have a very diverse uh, set of municipalities and cities and settlements in in this province, and and so one size does not necessarily fit all. And and you know, and, and Penticton kind of sits right in the middle of of the needs because we are a residential community. We have housing needs, but we are also a tourist community, and we need to uh, satisfy the tourist industry as well. So, and the, and okay. the tourism tourists that come here. Thank you for your time today and your thoughts on this. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right. Let's talk about drug lick, uh, public drug use now, especially after decriminalization. Public drug use has been a big issue. We've talked a lot about it here on the show. Did the government do the right thing here? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Adam Olson, Green Party MLA in the B.C. Legislature. Adam, thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, so let's talk about public drug use and the restrictions now that the government has introduced here. So this is Bill 34, Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act. This would restrict people from using drugs within 15 meters of a playground, a skate park, a kiddie, a, a kid's waiting pool, within six meters of a doorway. You guys are opposed to this bill, right? Why is that? Well, look, I, first of all, I want to preface this entire conversation with we agree with British Columbians and that nobody wants to see open drug use 
in our in our communities. It, that that is nobody wants to see that. Uh, the the fact that that's what's happening is a result, and and I think that the the drug use and the open drug use uh, in our communities is a symptom. It's not the problem. It's a problem. Uh, the problem is the fact that we haven't delivered the the types of housing that people need in order to get them uh, off the street and out of homelessness. We haven't provided the treatment when people need it, where people need it, uh, which has always been and always should have been part of uh, a move to decriminalize. The reality is here, and I, I think you know experts that spoke to the health care uh, uh, committee that, that looked at this, uh, the chief coroner, they're all saying, we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. This is not a criminal justice problem. This is a health care problem. And what we have but, is we have a government that's been spending billions of dollars increasing spending in health care yeah. and not delivering the services that these people, that the people who are uh, involved in, well, that are uh, addicted to drugs need where they need it, when they need it. But I also think, though, we've talked a lot about this on the show, and I think that what the government has proposed here with these public drug use restrictions is is almost inadequate. I mean, it's the least they could do. I mean, 15 meters away from a playground, six meters away from a from a doorway, like you could smoke crack cocaine 16 meters away from a playground or seven meters away. Well, you could light up a so, crack pipe seven meters away from a doorway. So, Why would you be opposed to these, this is, these this restrictions? Is, well, because this is the appearance of doing something. This is giving the discretion to do something. This isn't saying that anything has to be done. This is giving the frontline worker, a police officer, a bylaw officer, the discretion to do something if they choose to at that moment. Well, yeah, tell them to. you tell them you can't you can't use these drugs in a in a kid's there's, playground. There's, What's wrong with that? Well, I, I think that I I think that absolutely this government put decriminalization. Look, that drug use was happening yeah. prior to the decriminalization. It was an illicit substance and there was arrests that needed to be made. We now have a situation where we have stepped away from it for part of a year and now we are introducing a bill that puts puts the discretion back into the hands of officers and and, and bylaw officers and police officers that really don't want to be and should not be uh, on the front line doing this work. We need to provide housing for people. We need to provide treatment access for people that goes along with decriminalization. Criminalizing folks for a healthcare issue is not the appropriate approach. So so therefore and, people should be should be allowed to use these hard drugs in a playground in a park near a doorway I mean that's effectively what you're saying right Well look we've always moved this problem out of the public view and into the darkness That's yeah. always the way that our society has dealt with this Yeah We've always displaced people from public spaces so that they move the problem out of our view. The reality of this is, is that this law doesn't fix the problem that we have in our society right now. We have a public health emergency that's been going on since 2016 in this province when it was originally called uh, by, the, by the public health officer. We have more than 12,000 people who've died of illicit substance use, uh, uh, drug poisonings uh, in this province. It is, uh, it is astonishing that we are facing this problem. Moving it into the darkness does not solve it. Criminalizing folks does not solve it. Now, the, the, the point that we want to make about this specific bill needs to be, and I need to be very clear about this, yeah. we do not want to see public drug use. This government 
this government has put this bill on the table to appear to be solving this problem. And we have some very, very big problems with the fact that they, are, they uh, on one hand, took a victory lap when they de- decriminalized. Yeah. All done. I think it was Minister Malcolmson at the time came out. We're the first jurisdiction to decriminalize. Problem solved. As we're talking about today. But you support but solved. you support decriminalization, right? I do. I do support decriminalization. I don't think that the criminal justice system, a criminal justice system, by the way, which is having a hard enough time delivering criminal justice yeah. for criminals, uh, should not be the front line delivering health care services. Addictions are a health care issue. Everybody that we've talked to, everyone that's advised us has told us, deal with it as a health care issue. Don't put people in jail for a health care no. issue. Okay. Okay. Lots of, lots of people have an opposite opinion, of course. They will say that decriminalization was, was a mistake and it's, it's backfired in British Columbia. We've actually seen overdose deaths go up in British Columbia since they decriminalized drug possession. We're hearing lots of stories about public drug use that's out of control. So I think There's this, this is a big anecdotes. issue. There's a ton of anecdotes. I don't think that the BCCDC data proved, actually agrees with what you've just stated there and what people are saying. Uh, and my colleague, Sonia, first you don't of all, th- you don't think that drug overdose death rates are up? Drug overdose rates are absolutely continuing to increase in yeah. the province since before decriminalization. And they haven't but stopped. The fact, of the, matter is, the fact of the matter is, Mike, is that if, if you go back and look at what the chief coroner has been saying about the, the overdose or the drug poisoning deaths, the vast majority of them don't happen in public. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of them are people that look exactly like you and me. Yeah. They're working class people. They're, they've, they've got jobs, they've got houses, and they're dying alone in their house. That's the vast majority of the people who are dying of drug poisonings in our society. Let me play a clip here for you to get your thoughts. Now, this is a hot political issue at all, at all levels of government, including in the federal, the federal sphere as well. This is a federal conservative leader, Pierre Polyev. Let's listen to what he had to say about what BC has done with decriminalization of drug possession with the support of the Justin Trudeau government. Here's, here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Justin Trudeau and the federal NDP are radical and extreme to the point that they allowed crack and heroin in the first place to be legal and present in our playgrounds and around our schools. What do you say to him? Like he's saying it's a catastrophic mistake to decriminalize in the first place. Your thoughts? It is, it, it's not a catastrophic mistake to treat a health care issue as a health care issue. It is, it is a catastrophic mistake to treat a health care issue as a criminal justice issue. Yeah. We have, we have uh, the, the, the political parties in here talking about the catch and release program because our criminal justice system can't handle the weight of the vo- or the volume that's coming in here. Look, Mike Farnworth, when he, when he published this bill and when he introduced this bill, he said, look, what we're doing is we're giving the power of the police and the, and the bylaw enforcement officers to tell people to go to a safe consumption site. Now, this is, this is one of those tools that this government, in, in, in addition to treatment and, and, and housing, housing being first, like giving people a, a dignified place to sleep is the first thing that this government should be doing. But treatment and safe consumption sites. He says, look, just send people along to safe consumption sites. The reality is, is that it sounds like Mike hasn't been out of the down, you know, out of downtown Vancouver, out of the lower mainland, because in the vast majority of parts of this province, vast majority of the cities in this villages and towns in this province, there is no safe consumption sites. And so these are the types of tools that needed to be ramped up alongside decriminalization in order for the pilot, the project 
to be successful. Let, let, so, me ask you, let me ask you what you think should be done instead. So you would say that we continue with decriminalization of drug possession. You allow people to use drugs in public, okay, without these restrictions, but you're simultaneously calling for what, like a massive increase in spending on housing, drug treatment programs at the same time. That's the missing part. Well, is that what you're saying? Well, this government is so this government is already massively increasing the spending in these areas. It's the results that they're not getting. So British Columbians are already paying according to this government. They every time that we stand up and ask questions in question period, what we get from them is, "Oh, we're, we're spending more on housing. We're spending more on healthcare. We're spending more on mental health." The fact of the matter is, is that when somebody who is in the dis, in the depths of a, a drug addiction, they're in, yeah. the, in the depths of, of despair, and they decide to present themselves uh, at a safe consumption site and say, I want treatment. It's at that moment that this government needs to, this is exactly what the healthcare committee has, has, has said. And so what, part of what the problem is, is that I support, uh, I absolutely support decriminalization as, as a way to as a way out of this, but I support it in addition to a comprehensive mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. And that's what this government didn't deliver. And by not delivering that, what they did was they actually undermined what the experts are saying is here's, the way out of this. Here's the problem. And leaving the door open for people like Pierre Paulev to come in and criticize the entire project yeah. because they didn't do the job. Well, I, I'll agree with you to this extent. I think that they did not do the job. They de they rushed ahead with decriminalization before putting in place treatment options, housing, and all the things that you've just described. I, I agree with you. The problem, as I see it, is that the, the situation has gotten worse, and we've talked to lots of people who said that ever since decriminalization started, counter to what you just said, they have seen more public mayhem and public drug use. Let me let me give you an example. So this is Carmen Dunn. She lives in New Westminster. Okay, she was on the show last week, and here's what she's seeing around in her neighborhood. Let's listen. Regular drug users in my back alley right now, and this isn't like the '90s when there's kids smoking pot. Like this is Hastings level stuff that's going on in my back alley, and I'm watching it as I'm cooking out my, you know, the kitchen window. My children are watching it from their bedroom window, you know, and we're dealing with overdoses on our street. Okay, what do you say to her? She said she's actually seen dead bodies on on the street in her neighborhood from people who have owed, overdosed. Your thoughts? So have I. Yeah. I was downtown Victoria three times, two weeks ago, three times in, in three days, and I walked by our paramedics treating somebody who with, with naloxone. Yeah. That's, that's what's happening. That, that, the, the, this, and, I, and I think that what's important is that the anecdote that you give me needs yeah. to be tied with the argument that's being made. Yeah. This wasn't in a park. This was in a back alley. This was in this was in some. So the question that I have for you and, and that I have for people that that uh, and, and I don't want to be seen as unconcerned about this. I'm completely concerned about this. Right. I'm we need a compassionate response. There is nowhere for these people for people to go. Yeah. Where. OK, so where where then do they go? You mean, where do they use their drugs? Well, if they can't but, use them but, in a park or by a kid's I'm playground, saying, I'm just saying that the fact of the matter is, is that you can't we're not moving these people. We're not moving people places. Yeah. There's no place for them to go. They're, they're not they're not choosing this as like this is the best case scenario for them. Mm -hmm. This is this is the only case scenario for them. That's why that's why it's happening there. Yeah. This is a fundamental failure of our society. 
and and simply doing what we've always done, which is to say we're just going to keep moving some people around in society so that other people in society don't have to see that. What we need to do is we need to we need to do what what Sonia and I are doing right now and demand this government ramp up programs that we know are successful, like the ones the village site in 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 Cowichan for two million dollars, 40 people housed that that cities and towns across the province want this pro- program. It's not being delivered access to treatment, access to safe consumption sites, give people access to the services and supports that they're being promised okay. and start delivering. That's what this BCNDP government needs to do. Adam, thank you for coming in today for a good conversation. I appreciate it. All right, here we go with traffic enforcement cameras now. Do we need more of them? And I'm talking a lot more. So we're looking at intersection speed cameras, red light cameras. There are already 140 of these cameras around British Columbia. Traffic safety advocates, though, saying that is not enough. They want to expand the number of these cameras, set them up at more busy intersections, install them near schools, catch speeders and red light runners. Got Teal Phelps Bonderoff standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle. She is calling for an expansion of these cameras. Here she is talking to our own Jazz Joe Hall yesterday. There were over 7,300 crashes uh, involving motor vehicles last year. Um, 7,300 crashes that uh, involved people going into the hospital for injuries, and uh, 18 of those crashes resulted in people dying. And that's about 22 a day, and I think it's a significant public safety issue. Okay, that's Christine Bolt. Those numbers were for the city of Vancouver. Boy, that's a lot of crashes. Let's discuss with my guest, Teal Phelps Bonderoff, city councillor in Saanich. She has also been calling for an expansion of these uh, enforcement cameras. Councillor, yeah. thank you for coming on today. It's great to talk to you. And I can give you the numbers for the whole province. For, for 2020, sure. we had uh, 249 road fatalities, uh, six. 63,000 injuries, and this resulted in $435 million in healthcare costs, $770 million in total costs. So when you're looking at just the impact of Vancouver, it's huge. When you're looking at the impact on our communities, road safety is a major issue. And I mean, I don't need to tell folks, we already have a challenge with our healthcare system today. Keeping people out of the hospital, keeping them happy and healthy is a fantastic goal. And it's one that can be achieved not just with cameras, but with a range of approaches that include education, design, legislation, and of course, monitoring. Okay, we already have a network of these intersection cameras in place right now, 140 of them around BC. What do you think of that number? Inadequate? It's definitely inadequate. And the other challenge, of course, is that those are all run by the province. So at the Union of British Columbia Municipalities, uh, a few last month in, in Vancouver, delegates passed another motion calling on the province to give municipalities the ability to deploy cameras. Because right now the province deploys them. So we can't decide where they go. And as you said, 140 in the entire you know, province is inadequate. But what we've also seen is that people in BC support these. There was a poll that was done in uh, 2022, 802 people across the province. This is published in the uh, Journal of Transportation and Health. 82% of British Columbians support fixed cameras in school zones and playgrounds. 68% support speed on green cameras. So we could have a considerably larger number of cameras. And remember, these are a cost-effective way of enforcing traffic laws. And when we enforce traffic laws, we keep our roads safer. Okay, I'm I'm wondering if if they actually 
work? Are, is there evidence that they're effective? Let's listen to Councillor Boyle on, on this on this point. So this is Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle on that point. Let's listen. Speed cameras and red light cameras are one important piece of that. They're not the whole solution, but uh, they are incredibly effective uh, and an evidence-based solution for slowing our roads down and, and making them safer for everyone. Okay, how do we know if they're effective? We've got 140 of these cameras now, but you just mentioned some very very disturbing statistics on fatalities and, and yeah. crashes. Your thoughts? Yeah, so she's spot on. Empirical evidence supports this. Um, there's a study that was done in 2010. This was a meta-analysis of 35 studies, and they found that the average speed in the vicinity of traffic cameras goes down 15%. Collisions went down between 14 and 25%. Fatalities and serious injuries went down between 11 and 44%. So what we know, and that's from 2010, there was another study done in, in Toronto in 2021 that found that speeds were considerably reduced between 49 and, and 28% in the proximity of cameras. We have traffic laws, but they only work if they're followed, and they're often only followed if there's effective monitoring and enforcement. And so this is certainly one component. You heard Councillor Boyle talking about this being one element of road safety. Obviously, we also have to have better designed roads. We need to make sure that you know fines are effective. I've been on here before talking about means-tested traffic fines. You know, if someone gets a $100 yeah. <laughs> fine, it doesn't make much of a difference. So we need to have a combination of solutions. But traffic cameras are a really important tool, and they're used across the country and across the world. It's just BC that somehow decided in a, in a fit of populism to drop them in 2001, and that was a huge mistake in my opinion. What do you mean they dropped them? I mean, we still got 140 of these cameras oh, now, yeah. though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in 2001, you know, municipalities had the ability to deploy traffic cameras, and oh, uh, the BC Liberals um, jettisoned them as some sort of a populist electoral move. Um, across the rest of the country, you've got municipalities that deploy cameras effectively. So right now, you know, 140, it's it's something, but it's certainly yeah. not enough to ensure ad- adequate compliance and monitoring on our streets. Yeah. And again, those are run by the province, not municipalities. Right. Speaking to Saanich City Councillor Teal Phelps Bondaroff, do we need more traffic enforcement cameras at, especially at dangerous intersections? Like right now, the way this program is operated, Teal, you correct me if I'm wrong, but this is provincial jurisdiction. And municipalities, as you mentioned, don't have the authority to put these cameras up. Where? How does the province decide where these cameras go? Because I believe that they have said that we install these cameras at the worst intersections, like the most dangerous intersections. Is that correct? I believe that might be the that's the case. They they probably yeah. have a formula that I'm not quite privy to. But the problem, of course, that you just said is they're installing them at intersections. Those tend to be red light cameras. Some of them also have speed on red light. So you're getting people running red lights and their speed. But we're not seeing them at playground zones, school zones, and other locations. And that's another place that we definitely want to have people following the law. And like as I said earlier when I was studying the study, most people agree you shouldn't be speeding in playground and school zones. Why aren't we deploying cameras there? So having the province deploy them at intersections, particularly problematic intersections, is good. But it's not what we need. We need considerably more monitoring. And also, you know, cameras have come a long way. We now have um, two-point cameras where it'll take the vehicle's speed at one uh, – take a, a photo of a, a vehicle at one point. And then yeah. further down the road, we'll take another photo, and it'll average the speed out, which accommodates people, you know, adjusting their speed based on road conditions. And that's used around the world. And that's a way of effectively monitoring speeding on highways and roads. And so if we're just putting cameras at intersections, yes, we're dealing with a particularly acute problem, but we're not ensuring compliance broadly. And, and that's where we should be deploying them more widely. Okay, what do you say to someone who's listening to this right now, Teal, and thinking, here we go again. Here comes government to pick my pocket again. 
They just want to set up speed traps to raise revenue. What do you say to that? I mean, the only re- the only way that these cameras raise revenue is if people are breaking law and laws are put in place to keep people safe. So don't speed and then you'll avoid getting tickets. Uh, OK, well, how when would the tickets kick in, though? Like, would it be five, you know, one kilometer over the speed limit? You get a ticket or would you have a little bit of a margin there? Um, yeah, there. My understanding from looking at other jurisdictions is that there's often a conversation about where the margin is set. I will note that speed limits are limits, and uh, that's the speed maximum you should be using on the road. I know a lot of people will use that as the sort of the default speed. Um, That's a conversation that I would probably leave up to traffic engineering experts to to find the sweet spot um, as far as, you know, accommodating average driving behavior, but also making sure that people are compliant with the law. What about fairness to drivers? Because I have heard about speed traps that are set up, for example, at the bottom of a hill where people are just speeding up naturally through the power of gravity, or you set up a camera at a speed limit interchange where the speed limit suddenly drops. You put the camera right there. It's like a fishing hole to catch to catch speeders. Would well, you, would you, you consider, up. yeah, would you consider like a, a fairness code or something about where these things could be set up? I'm glad you brought up fairness because it raises yeah. another aspect. You know, cameras are much more subject, uh, objective than, say, an average person. And we know from different studies that different types of cars are more likely to be pulled over. A camera is able to simply give someone a ticket if they're speeding rather than doing any kind of profiling based on a number of factors. And I should also note, just before I get into answering your question more directly, cameras keep people safer, right? Everyone involved in a traffic stop on the side of the road is at a greater risk. You know, we have officers being hit by vehicles. We have people being put in potential safety, um, uh, unsafe situations. So cameras take away a lot of that. You know, obviously, we're still going to have roadside stops for a range of things. But traffic uh, cameras take a lot of pressure off our law enforcement and allow them to focus on, on more serious issues. When it comes to situations like that, I mean, I think the goal is not to trick people and to to give them a ticket in that context. The goal is to increase road safety. But if you have a particularly dangerous spot where there is a speed reduction, we probably have to ask ourselves, why is there a speed reduction there in the first place? It's probably to keep people safe. So, you know, follow the rules of the road, keep people yourself and people around you safe, and you won't get a ticket. Okay. Lots of calls on traffic enforcement cameras. Let's get right at it here. Jim and Burnaby. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I'm totally with that. I, I agree 100% with that. It's insane out here. People have no control. <laughs> Where, whereabouts? When you say out here, whereabouts are you seeing bad behavior? Everywhere through the lower mainland. It's outrageous. Mm. People run yeah. red light. It's no, there's no issue. You know, it's like, let's just do it. Okay, you know, do, you think if they, do you think if they knew there was a camera there, they would slow down? Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. You know, I just got back from the States. And I see police everywhere in the States, you know, got, you know, looking at the highways everywhere here. You don't see anybody out there. So they do whatever they want. It's out of control. Okay, Jim, thank you for your call. Would uh, Teal, would you put up, if you put these cameras up, would you put up warning signs? Just warn drivers. Hey, there's a camera up ahead. You often find that jurisdictions will do that. And I think that's often a good idea. Um, It depends on, on the goal that you're trying to achieve. You know, if you're putting a, a sign up in a playground zone, I mean, people already know there's a playground zone there, so don't yeah. speed and endanger the lives of children. But if you're popping up randomly, moving it about, what you'll find with a lot of the surveys they've done of members of the public is people tend to support stationary cameras in particularly problematic areas like playgrounds and school zones. 
And then support tends to go down a little bit, still above 50%, but it goes down when you have cameras moving about. But that's another way of ensuring compliance, mm-hmm. right? Um, if people know there's a speed trap, then they'll slow down for that one spot, but we'd hate for them to speed up and endanger lives right after that section of road ended. Derek in Vancouver. Hi, Derek. Go ahead. Uh, a couple of points. Firstly, uh, when I come into Vancouver or driving on the freeway, I, uh, you know, the HOV lane, everybody in there is like one person. It's a joke. They could be maybe no HOV. And the second point is, it's very dangerous out there. People don't obey the speed laws. And I've been, I've been cut off, actually cut off and had to pull to the side of the road because a truck driver cut me off. I mean, that's never happened to me in 40 years here. So it's terrible. We really need that. So you support the camera, you support the cameras then you, you support cameras, you support, bring on the cameras then, right? Absolutely. Until people start obeying the law, driving is, is, is not a right. It's a privilege. Thank you, Derek, for the call. Gary and Delta. Hi, Gary, go ahead. Good morning, Mike. First time caller. Uh, I've been listening to your program and I'm thinking if Cora stopped advertising the fact where this radar traps are, maybe if these people uh, got a few more tickets that they would uh, slow down generally. But uh, I think uh, the problem is uh, with uh, you advertising where the radar traps are, people slow down. Well, isn't that a good thing if they slow down? It's a good thing, but uh, uh, if you didn't have the trap there and they got a couple of, uh, a couple of tickets, then... Uh, they, they, they get the message. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Well, that teal that gets back to the this concept of uh, giving a warning because I actually think that a warning sign that is displayed saying "Hey, there, there's a, a camera up ahead" would actually be a good thing. I think the point Gary's raising is an interesting one where the goal in my mind is compliance. We want people following the law so they're driving safer. And there's a combination of factors. You know, when it comes to following the law, you have to have fines that properly incentivize good behavior. There has to be a chance of getting caught. And there's going to be a bit of uh, of both sides. So I would say, yeah. and this is again, not as, not as a traffic engineer, but some situations signage would make sense. Other situations, maybe not. What's interesting with some of the studies that we've seen is that you tend to have uh, fines going up initially when you put out cameras and then compliance kicks in and then the fines tend to go down over time. So the goal mm. is ultimately keeping our roads safer. And so I'd be happy with whatever model maximize that. Derek in Coquitlam. Hi, Derek. Go ahead. Anyway, yeah, I disagree with that last caller. I mean, the thing is, uh, compliance facilitation is what it's all about. If the signs are out, if you guys are advertising it, people are going to slow down because they don't want to get caught. And if they don't yeah. slow down, then they'll get the ticket. The other thing is, um, you know, these cameras, um, you know, they're they're also going to help with, uh, you know, catching criminals and, you know, uh, amber alerts and all sorts of other stuff that's that's going to happen. And then you're, the last thing I want to say is, uh, you know, the, the amount of the ticket based on your income, totally yeah. disagree with that. Because if I'm driving it, you know, 40 kilometers over the speed limit with my Corolla, I deserve the same ticket as the guy who's driving 40 kilometers over it with his Lamborghini. So oh, Okay, thank you. Thank you for raising that point. Teal, we got 30 seconds here. Like, give, give me your quick take here on the income-tested traffic fines. $100 fine means nothing to someone who makes 2 or $3 million a year, and it is potentially economically destroying for someone who makes $30,000 a year. We want fines to effectively incentivize compliance, and that means basing them on income so the person has the same 
uh, incentive force, the same deterrent force being exerted upon the person. So, no, we shouldn't have a right to to speed just because you happen to have lots okay. of money in your pockets. Okay, I'm sure we could take 100 calls on that topic alone, so we'll just have to have you back on. Thank you for coming anytime, on today. Anytime, my friend. Always a pleasure, and anytime, and drive safe out there, folks. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.